In the last module, we discussed the negative effects of stress on the body and introduced the concept of resilience or an ability to bounce back from a stressful event or experience. And so we extend that discussion now into this module with some examples of training the mind for resilience. So by the end of this learning module, Ideally, you will have gained an ability to describe the connection between a peace of mind and health, its effect on disease states. And we'll compare and contrast mindfulness, meditation, and relaxation as ways to go about obtaining peace of mind and health. And we'll demonstrate familiarity with the relaxation response and how that fits in to combating the stress response. And we'll kind of talk about some barriers and ways that you might be able to work toward achieving peace of mind. Now, just kind of as a review, last time we described how pervasive our response is to stress. And that sometimes, initially, before we've trained ourselves, it can be out of our control how our body responds. And it can be in all areas of our lives, in addition to affecting our lifestyle behaviors, which is why we talk about it here in this Lifestyle Medicine course. Now, when people are stressed, they may be too upset to sleep. They may eat to relieve stress. They may stop exercising because they perceive there's just not enough time. They may avoid social gatherings, or if they engage in them, they may be stressful um, or strained. They may find it hard to appreciate humorous situations. They may focus on the negative rather than the positive and find themselves looking for relief with alcohol or drugs. Now, we also talked about some recommended stress relievers. For example, that exercise can nourish the brain, building up new neurons and connections, and that cross-training, maybe you know, expanding out from endurance into strength training and stretching, other things can be helpful there. Socialization, we'll talk a little bit more about that actually next time. Maintaining relationships, particularly with a few close friends that become a support network for you. That gaining empowerment, feeling in control over certain aspects rather than letting those things that are out of control guide what's happening. Humor and laughter. We'll talk a bit more about that in a couple modules. In fact, even imagined laughter has been shown to reduce self-reported sadness. We'll talk more in a future module about positive thinking and that you can even coach people into choosing positive thoughts over negative. We'll talk more in the future about gratitude and using a gratitude journal to foster some of those positive thoughts. Now, these are recommended stress relievers that we'll continue to build upon in the next few modules. But for today, we'll talk about relaxation in addition to meditation and meditative movement or mindful movement and even ways that you can go about training yourself or helping others. So we turn now to three specific forms of obtaining a peaceful mind. So three paths to reducing stress. One of those that we'll talk about that's relatively broad is meditation and has many different definitions depending on the context and culture. And then we'll talk about a specific form of that called mindfulness. And then another approach that can sometimes be part of meditation and sometimes be done completely separate from that, and that's the relaxation response. These are all connected and interrelated. So let's go about exploring each one of these a little bit more. 
let's start with meditation. Now, this can be kind of hard to define because there are varying definitions depending on the various historical traditions in which they were developed or practiced. Um, but one of the definitions that I actually really like is by John Kabat-Zinn, who we'll talk about a little bit later as a famous researcher and proponent of a specific type of meditation called mindfulness. Now, he defined meditation as any way in which we engage in systematically regulating our attention and energy, thereby influencing and possibly transforming the quality of our experience in the service of realizing the full range of our humanity and of our relationships to others and the world. So if you stop and read back through that, it's kind of a profound definition because as I said, meditation has many different definitions depending on historical traditions. And one sort of simple definition that has been proposed by Sharp Brains is a capacity building technique to manage stress and build resilience. Now that may be a, a much more easier to understand definition for you. In fact, if we look at a very simple definition that might be given in a dictionary, for example, meditation is the act or process of spending time in quiet thought. Our textbook talks about meditation as a way to go beyond one's automatic thinking, to get to a deeper or more grounded state. In fact, the quote from our brain, our, our, our textbook about what is happening in the brain in, on page 323, they describe to train and tame the mind such that the inner silence and higher modes of consciousness are accessible. So let's look at those traditions, the history of it. And this is just very brief because you could go into an entire lecture or even class on the traditions and history of meditation. It is something that has occurred in many different groups of people and cultures and contexts throughout thousands and thousands of years. In fact, probably one of the more traditional cultures to have practiced meditation is among Buddhism. And you're probably all familiar with the Dalai Lama and other um, famous meditation specialists. It has been used in many different faith traditions, actually. Um, while Buddhism may be one of the areas where it is considered more traditional, it has been used in many faith traditions and even non-faith contexts. It's become more mainstream recently. And in fact, um, in a government survey in 2012, they looked at meditation among other types of complementary and alternative health approaches because as it has become more mainstream, it has been viewed as a way to address stress and improve health. And so among many different complementary health approaches, meditation kind of in 2012 fell at about 8% of the things that are used in health approaches. But since that time, it is actually tripled. So um, this indicates that in, in that survey that it was even less, that it was around 4.1%. But since that time, more recently, it has gone up to at least about 15%. And I would argue that even in the past five years that that has gone up even more than that. Now, the use of meditation may vary between different age groups. For example, at that time in the survey in 2017, the age group between 45 and 64 
were the ones using it the most. And in fact, women were more likely to use meditation than men, interestingly. But there are many types of meditation, and this is not an exhaustive list. There are many, many different types that have a different focus or purpose, perhaps. Focused attention meditation is when a particular object, either outside of oneself, for example, a sound, a candle or a mantra, in other words, a phrase or word that is repeated, or it could even be a focus that is inside oneself, such as one's breathing. And there are certain forms of focused attention prayer that could fall under this category. For example, there are meditative prayers such as the rosary, where a, a single prayer is repeated over and over to achieve a contemplative meditative effect. There's another form called open monitoring meditation, where the attention is not on a specific object or focus, but rather open to all aspects of the experience at the present moment, which is closely related to one that we'll talk about a little bit later, which is mindfulness meditation, which has a very specific purpose for non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And so that when the, the mind begins to wander, you notice and acknowledge those thoughts, you let them go and flow past, and then refocus again on the present moment. And we'll talk more about that because it does have some significant research behind it. Now, activity-oriented or movement meditation has also become popular. Certain forms of yoga, Tai Chi, even walking and running can have a meditative effect, assuming you are focusing specifically on the footfall, the regular rhythm of the feet hitting the ground, and that sort of individual focus on the movement to achieve a meditative state. Probably one of the most common types of meditation, at least that has received the most scientific study and probably one of the most widely practiced, is transcendental meditation. It is a specific form of mantra meditation that has a standardized training technique and a specific posture. In other words, sitting comfortably with the eyes closed. Now, I'm not going to go into each of these in explicit detail because regardless of the type or style, there are some common elements that, that are underlying each of the types of meditation that exist out there. A quiet location without distractions a specific comfortable posture, and a focus of attention, an open attitude. So regardless of what form that meditation takes, there are some commonalities here. Now, why are we even talking about meditation with lifestyle medicine? That's because the current understanding of the biological basis of meditation leads to a counteracting of the physiological effects of the stress response. Because through research, meditation is thought to affect the autonomic or involuntary nervous system. We talked about the autonomic nervous system in the previous module on stress. We talked about how stress produces an increase in the sympathetic nervous system. And so by getting all of these things to occur, we led to some, that led to some negative effects on our health. But what is beneficial from the physiological response to meditation is there is a reduction in activity of that sympathetic response and an increasing in the parasympathetic, so that balanced side of the autonomic nervous system. 
And specifically by breathing air into the lungs, you temporarily block that parasympathetic influence on the heart rate. And then when you're breathing out air, you reinstate that parasympathetic influence and the heart rate goes down. So you're going to get an opposite effect here on that heart rate, which is going to help reduce the sympathetic stress response. And in fact, vagal nerve stimulation has been shown to trigger the parasympathetic nervous response. And vagal nerve stimulation, like Valsalva, remove, um, Valsalva um, responses have been shown to be used in responding to um, chronic heart events as beneficial to reducing the heart rate and stress on the heart during those times of stress. So let's look more at that. What do we know about the impact of meditative effects on the body? Meditation and the circulatory system is pretty big, and I'll show you a few other research um, results here in a little bit about meditation specifically and its response on cardiac rehab. Meditation has been shown to decrease blood pressure in addition to reducing the pulse and the heart rate. Overall, this leads to a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. It diminishes the likelihood of blood clots and hardening of the arteries. In the digestive system, it helps stimulate digestion. Remember, in the stress response, digestion is not an important part of the fight-or-flight response, and so you have a decreased digestion. So you're going to counteract that here and get an increase in production of saliva and enzymes in the mouth. And in fact, meditation, specifically mindful meditation, may enhance positive food choices because of an improved awareness in the present moment and thinking as opposed to an automatic response that may have poorer food choices. In the endocrine system, you get a more normalization of endocrine activity. This can also help with sleep and hormonal levels that improve not only endocrine activity as it might be related to diabetes, but also in the immune system because meditation seems to improve immunity and reduce markers of inflammation, which we know can be part of the pathophysiology of many different chronic diseases. In the skin, you're going to get a reduced production of sebum, so that oily part of the skin that can often cause a exacerbation of skin conditions like eczema, like acne, and even in skin-related infections such as the herpes virus, you can get a reduction in the, the recurrence of cold sores because of the skin immunity that may be bolstered through meditative practices. In the musculoskeletal system, you can get a reduction of muscle tension and stress-related disorders such as headache, which we talked about as relatively common with stress. And you're going to get that um, reduction in pressure on the joints as the muscles around joints are relaxed. So you may even get an increase in joint flexibility as related to the practice of meditation. In the nervous system, as I said just a moment ago, you're going to get a reduction of the sympathetic nervous system and an increase in the parasympathetic activity. In the respiratory system, it lowers the rate of breathing and also prevents the onset of asthma, hyperventilation, or panic attacks as they're related to the respiratory system. In the urinary system, we have some of those same um, balance effects that we saw produced with the sympathetic 
response and stress response. We talked about how you can have an exacerbation of incontinence and some of the um, stress-related urinary symptoms. So here you're going to balance some of that. You're going to get a reduction in incontinence and other urinary-related symptoms. And then with the reproductive system, we talked about the effects of stress, particularly on infertility and some of the related areas of libido, which in, um, in the world of infertility treatment, stress and relaxation therapy, uh, these can be important part of a whole person approach to addressing infertility. It is also something that can be really helpful even in women during their normal menstrual cycle as a way to help overcome some of those, those um, symptoms that women might experience. You'll notice that all these effects in the body system are essentially counteracting the effects of stress that we talked about in the previous module. Now, in the very early days of research on meditation, it really got its, got its start about 50 years ago with something that became known as mind-body medicine. In the very early days of meditation research in, in the early 1970s, there was a article published titled A Wakeful hypometabolic physiologic state. And in that research, they found that there were different uses of oxygen and carbon dioxide, and yet differing levels of oxygen in the bloodstream during these states that they called a hypometabolic state, which we now know as meditation. And then these researchers, you'll see these names come back up in a moment, described a very specific process related to transcendental meditation where they had a systematic, systematic method taught to individuals where they perceived a sound or thought and without attempting to concentrate on it, allowed their mind to experience it freely. And then the practitioners themselves reported rises in this um, finer, more creative level in an easy and natural manner. So that was interestingly how they described it at that time. But in later research, more than 40 years later, um, mindfulness meditation programs were studied in a systematic review in 2014. And they were able to note that there is a moderate strength of evidence for improvement in some of those psychological mental health conditions that are related to stress, such as anxiety, depression, and even perception of pain. There was a low strength of evidence, but yet still positive, for improvement in stress and distress and mental health-related quality of life. Now, what's interesting here is they found low, no, or insufficient strength of evidence for positive mood, attention, substance use, and some of those behavioral things that we've been talking about. Now, this may lead you to think, well, meditation doesn't then have an effect on behavioral outcomes related to lifestyle medicine. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not supported. In fact, they noted that there need to be stronger study designs because many of the studies that they were using in this systematic review did not have strong um, study designs or not sufficient number of participants or there were flaws in the study designs. And so we need to be looking at this in a more formal way with very specific study designs, ideally randomized controls trials, so that we can get a better idea of what's actually going on here. What they did note was that meditation programs, and in particular mindfulness programs, which we'll talk about here in a moment, 
do reduce multiple negative dimensions of the psychological aspects of stress. And then what we ideally hope to show in the future is that these, these dimensions of mental health may then be related to stress as it informs our behavioral outcomes. So we will talk about mindfulness in a moment because there is some positive evidence related to some of these lifestyle behaviors in this specific type of meditation programs. Now, even if studies aren't strong with specific health behaviors, there is some really interesting evidence on the effects of meditation on the brain itself. Now, there are four areas of the brain that have been studied as it relates to meditation or mindfulness specifically. The prefrontal cortex is one area that has been studied, and that is the area of the brain right here that is responsible for complex behavior, executive functioning, it is part of our emotional response and behavioral functioning. And then another area, which I'll talk about just in a moment, is more on the interior part of the brain where self-awareness, perception, and cognitive functioning interacts with the prefrontal cortex. So another area I'll talk about here in a little bit are these two, and they are more related to studies done with mindfulness meditation. But let's look at what the research said specifically about the prefrontal cortex and the insula in the brain as it relates to meditation. So in 2005, this study was reported where meditation seemed to have a, a different effect on the size of both the prefrontal cortex and the insula. So what they did, again, it was a small number of participants. They took 20 long time experienced daily meditators and compared the brain scans of their brains against 15 people who had absolutely no experience with meditation or yoga. And if you look here on their measurements of the thickness of these two areas of their brain, these ones in blue were the regular meditators. And you can see that in this area, in the insula responsible for your self-awareness, they had on average thicker tissue in that area. And even in the prefrontal cortex, on average, meditators had thicker tissue in that area of the brain responsible for your executive functioning and behavioral control. Now what's interesting here is there's also evidence then of changes in the amygdala and hippocampus with a specific form of meditation called mindfulness meditation, which I'll talk about in a moment. So it's possible that with regular meditation, you have a greater self-awareness as it is shown with an increased size of your insula and executive function and behavioral control as it relates to the prefrontal cortex in the brain. Now, this may all be great. Again, when we look at research, we're like, okay, that's great, but how do I get started with this? Let alone guide a patient or client. It, is, it can be understandably intimidating, particularly if you have little to no experience with meditation. So it's often recommended to get started with very small, short efforts with an intention to be practiced and regular with it, much like with a new exercise plan it is necessary to have regular training, regular exercise to see the benefits of exercise. The same is true with meditation. It requires regular practice, 
regular training. And so that might even be one of the focuses of getting started with meditation, not in the experience of it and length of it, but rather in building a regular practice, even if relatively short. For example, a one minute breath meditation could be beneficial to somebody who's just getting started. And in fact, you can use guided audio. And there are many of these available if you do a search. There are even podcasts or apps that are available to help with a one minute guided breath meditation. Now for some people, part of the issue with getting started with meditation is a struggle with being still for any period of time. So for some people, movement in relation to meditation may be very helpful. Walking meditations, meditative yoga flows, these may also be a way to help people who are struggling with being still and getting started with meditation. Tai Chi is another one that has been described as a movement meditation. And again, there are many resources available out there on the internet. Or even a lying down meditation for somebody who perhaps struggles with maintaining certain postures or having their mind wander. This may be something that could be particularly important as it relates to relaxation, which I'll talk about in a little bit. There are some very focused meditations for those who wish to branch out and explore some different traditions in meditation. For example, Zen meditations that encourage you to be at one with the present moment as it relates, for example, to mindfulness, we'll talk about in a moment. And even ones that are meant to, to encourage very specific positive thinking, like a loving kindness meditation that help you to embrace both compassion towards yourself and to others. Or certain focus meditations, like using a specific word or phrase, in other words, a mantra. For others, meditation related to creativity can be helpful. In fact, it's become more popular recently to do meditative, creative experiences, such as coloring, um, using a flow experience. We talked about positive stress or flow as it relates to um, creativity in the previous um, module. So that is another option. Now, something that has also become more interesting is the idea of using biofeedback for meditation because it can be so difficult for people getting started with meditation. There are some commercial products out there that have tried to help it be easier for people to understand when their mind is wandering so that they can recognize it and bring themselves back into a meditative state. Now remember when we talked about sleep, that there are specific electrical signals or brain waves that can be measured with EEG. Now we talked about, for example, theta and delta waves that can occur during sleep. Well, some of those same brain waves can be found in meditative states. So there are some commercial products such as the Muse headband that take kind of an EEG and make it into a very small set of sensors that you can use at home to help guide a meditative state. And what they've done is they've translated the measurement of those brain waves into sound. So by wearing earbuds, you hear in your ear whether you, your mind has wandered. For example, if you are starting to wander into more heightened thinking levels away from meditative state, you hear the sounds of sort of a storm or a, a really um, active ocean shore, as opposed to a very calm water or very calm 
small rain as opposed to a storm. And that can help people as they hear a storm in their ear, they realize their mind has wandered. And so they try to then refocus back into a meditative state. And the way that this works is it takes these brain waves and relates them to sound. So gamma and beta are some of your really heightened areas of perception in terms of brain waves. These are times of learning, active thinking, problem solving, as opposed to alpha and theta states of brain waves that are relaxation, creativity, and in fact, theta was one of those ones that we found during light sleep and dreaming. It is also found even in wakeful states when you are most creative, in a flow state, and in deep meditation. And some of these are found in different parts of the brain during meditation. So both of these are what we are hopefully going for during a meditative state. In fact, um, the fight or flight response is more associated with beta brain waves as opposed to the relaxation response or times of meditation in which you find alpha and theta rhythms. So if you have an interest in sort of training yourself, um, those commercial products like the Muse headband can be really helpful for giving you biofeedback and training yourself if you have a tendency for your mind to wander during meditation. Now, you might think meditation could benefit everyone, right? Well, there is a word of caution here because evidence has shown that there are possible side effects of meditation in certain populations. There can be negative outcomes of meditation in individuals who have psychiatric conditions. The rumination or negative thoughts and feelings that can come up and not be managed well in certain populations can lead to poor outcomes with meditation. And in those cases, you have to be open to the fact that meditation may not be beneficial for everyone and be aware that a referral or consultation with a mental health professional might be something you would recommend with a patient or client who seems to indicate a poor response to meditative effects. Now let's shift gears slightly and talk about a very specific kind of meditation called mindfulness. And while this concept has existed for a very long period of time, it was developed into a formal stress reduction program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR, by John Kabat-Zinn. Now he was a student of Buddhist teachers that were very famous for um, perfecting, so to speak, the meditative practices. And in the early 70s, or I'm sorry, late 70s, he founded the world-renowned Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Clinic and later founded the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society and was a founding member of the Cambridge Zen Center. So he has really developed this connection between using mindfulness as a way to reduce stress in the context of medicine and healthcare, which is why we're talking about it here as an approach to lifestyle medicine. So what is mindfulness? Well, at its base state, it's a quality or state of being mindful. Well, what does that mean? Being mindful is the practice of maintaining a non-judgmental state of heightened or complete awareness of your thoughts emotions or experience on a moment to moment basis. Now, the definition that I prefer is that specifically that John Kabat-Zinn outlined in his book, Mindfulness for Beginners. 
Mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, in three specific ways. On purpose, paying attention on purpose to the present moment, non-judgmentally. So this is easier said than done, but it has grown in popularity because it is one of the more simpler types of meditation to learn. Now, don't take that the wrong way. Simple does not mean easy, but your effort in this form of meditation is purely to be aware of the present moment without judgment. So it takes, again, a lot of practice, but his program of daily meditations and gentle stretching exercises, yoga-esque stretching exercises, are designed to refocus the body's response to stressors that are outside of your control to also empower you then to take a moment and respond consciously to something rather than automatically. And this can be extremely important as it relates to that moving from an automatic response, a doing mode. Move from doing the doing mode, as he puts it, where you automatically respond to stressors to the being mode. And in this way, you make a conscious effort. It can benefit the lifestyle behaviors by helping you to pause, be in the present moment, become aware of what's going on before you respond. So not having that response be automatic. So this is where it connects really closely to altering those lifestyle behaviors because some of those are an automatic response. The way we respond to food, the way we respond to exercise, the way we respond to stress. And by com- by becoming more mindful of our, our behaviors and responses, we can choose consciously to make a different response, a different choice. So what does the research say? This mindfulness-based stress reduction program as a stress management intervention has been studied in healthy individuals. And in 2014, a systematic review was done of 17 articles. And what's really awesome is of those 17, 16 demonstrated positive changes in the psychological or physiological outcomes related to anxiety and or stress. Now that being said, not all of them were randomized controlled trials, which we know is the gold standard for research. And many of them had small sample sizes and they used different outcome measures. So it's hard to compare across all these studies. However, what these researchers concluded is that even though They had different outcome measures and they had small sample sizes and not all were randomized controlled trials. It does appear as though the mindfulness-based stress reduction program appears to be a promising modality for stress management and that it may have some effects on health and some of that may be through brain changes. Remember we talked about how meditation itself can have effects on increasing the size of the prefrontal cortex and insula? Well, now let's take a look at these other two areas of the brain. 
the amygdala, and the hippocampus are other areas that have been studied in the brain specifically as they relate to mindfulness. The amygdala is part of the limbic system and this is what regulates emotional control. The hippocampus we've talked about previously because it is really important as it is related to cortical arousal. We talked about that when we talked about sleep and it is also related to the limbic system and the emotional control in the amygdala because it helps with the emotional control as well as being involved in memory and learning. We talked about that as some of the other cognitive benefits of making these lifestyle changes. So in 2010, some structural changes were noted in the amygdala looking at 26 subjects who were obviously stressed, but otherwise healthy. They went through an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program and then completed a perceived stress survey before and after, in addition to MRI, MRI scans of their brain. What's really interesting here is that after the program, not only did their perceived stress go down, but they had changes in both the amygdala and the hippocampus. Their reduction in stress correlated positively with a decrease in amygdala size. Now that may sound counterintuitive. Why did it decrease? That is because remember the amygdala is related to emotional regulation. So if you're more stressed and you're responding with more emotion, it increases in size because it's working harder. So a smaller size of the amygdala may indicate a lessening of the autonomic emotional response and a more conscious control over that response. If you look at the gray matter in the hippocampus, this, remember, is related to memory learning as well as emotional regulation. They had an increase in size. And in this case, they had 27 minutes of practicing this mindfulness-based stress reduction, so less than half an hour a day. And this had definite changes on the brain visible on MRI. So research indicates it could benefit not only the size and changes in the brain, but also your perceived stress. It can also be helpful in healthcare. There have been studies, a review of literature was done in 2014 that found that it can not only reduce stress in healthcare workers, but mindfulness could increase compassion in patient care. This can be really important because not only will it make those healthcare workers better, better able to do their job, but they may then be able to help those patients or clients be able to address their own stress. So it can develop self-compassion, then in turn increasing the effectiveness of our healthcare system. You, in your future practice, could take a coach approach to this. Remember we talked about that coaching cycle. And one of the first things that you're going to be doing is to be empathetic. In fact, in formal coaching, health coaching programs, mindfulness is one of the things that is recommended to be used right before a coaching conversation. Before going into any patient or client interaction, it is best for you to align your own mindfulness approach to be in the present moment with that patient or client so that you can better meet their needs rather than thinking about the patient you just saw or what is going on with your own stress in your life yesterday or in the future. 
So it can help both in coaching behavior change, not only you carrying that out in your own life, but helping that patient or client because you will then be able to help them as recommendation for their own mindfulness training, which will then allow them to go through this process in a much more productive way. Now a third path for stress resilience in the mind is relaxation training. And this goes right back to it. It brings us full circle, right back to Herbert Benson, who was one of the first ones to formally research meditation. Remember, he's the one that talked about and um, published that hypometabolic state in that paper in the early 70s. Now, relaxation is sort of a term we use quite a bit. To relax might be to become or cause to become less tense, tight, or stiff to stop feeling nervous or worried. And often it's related to spending time doing something enjoyable or resting after you have been doing something that requires effort. And so it's kind of the opposite of stress. Remember we talked about tension, tightness, stiffness related to stress. So this is meant to counteract that. In fact, the term he coined was the relaxation response. Herbert Benson, has since that time done a ton of research on mind-body medicine in an effort to counteract the stress response. His relaxation response was defined as your personal ability to encourage your body to release chemicals and brain signals that make your muscles and organs slow down and increase flow to the brain. And as a result, then, counteract the fight or flight response. Some of these these chemicals and brain signals that are produced are directly balancing that sympathetic response. So we're again stimulating the parasympathetic response. Now he used a very specific pattern in his research. He encouraged people to start by sitting quietly in a comfortable position. He recommended that individuals close their eyes. And you may be thinking, well, how is this any different than the process that might be used in meditation? Well, here is where there is a slight difference. The focus of instituting or encouraging the relaxation response is this third step. Individuals are encouraged through a progressive relaxation response where you deeply relax all your muscles. And it is common to usually start with your feet and moving up the body to the face and very specifically walking through a concentrated effort to focus and put your attention on muscles in those specific parts of the body and then moving up to the face. Now, during that time, Individuals are encouraged to breathe through the nose and repeat the word one. Now, this is just the word that he encouraged to help focus that breathing. You could use any other word or mantra. That is just what he outlined in his studies initially. And to continue this for 10 to 20 minutes so that the overall um, response is a relaxation of muscles in all of the parts of the body. Now, during that time, he also encouraged individuals not to worry about whether the deep level of relaxation is being achieved because 
it may not occur the same for everyone. And in fact, within the same individual, this process may be different from time to time. But what is encouraged here is to maintain a passive attitude. Permit that relaxation to occur at its own pace, which may be different for everybody and at different times. And that, similar to with mindfulness, when distracting thoughts occur, try to ignore them, or at least if they come up, don't dwell on them, and shift the mind back to repeating that mantra and concentrating on breathing and back to a focus on the parts of the body and actively relaxing. And again, sometimes that's easier said than done. But what's really interesting here is this process of active relaxation and encouraging the relaxation response has been studied, particularly as it relates to cardiac rehab, which is why I bring it up for your um, knowledge here, because many of you exercise science or going into physical therapy, this could be something that may be important if it isn't already part of cardiac rehab, could be encouraged to complement that um, process of cardiac rehab. In fact, relaxation therapy was studied in a review of literature of 27 studies. Unfortunately, not all of them were randomized controlled studies, and many of them had varying intensities of the intervention. In fact, the, the individuals doing this review used a graded system that would tell uh, the reader how intense those interventions were so that they could see if their outcomes were, were better if they were more intense of a relaxation program. And what they found, this is, I mean, look at this huge list. It's really interesting. They found that the physiological outcomes of this relaxation therapy, along with cardiac rehab, was that there was a reduction in resting heart rate. They had an increase in heart rate variability and improved exercise tolerance and an increase in that good cholesterol or HDL. Now, here's the psychological impact of that relaxation therapy. There was a reduction in anxiety, and often there's quite a bit of anxiety following a cardiac event because individuals begin to worry about having another cardiac event. It's often very stressful after a cardiac event has occurred because there are um, more likelihood for people to have a recurring event. There is also a reduction in depression shown in these studies with relaxation therapy as part of cardiac rehab. Now with the heart itself, the frequency of chest pain was reduced. The occurrence of arrhythmia was reduced, which is quite common after a cardiac event. And exercise-induced ischemia or blood restriction to the heart, that was also reduced. So this was deemed to be an effective adjunct or complement to the medical care as part of standard cardiac rehab. And that confirmed previous studies that already established an important role of stress management and psychological education for cardiac patients. Now, specifically, they noted that relaxation is beneficial for the emotional physical state of the patient, which then could affect their their outcomes as a whole for cardiac rehab. So they recommended that relaxation be added as another dimension of rehabilitation and recovery from a cardiac event. What they also noted was those studies that had a more intensive program of relaxation, they had better results. And again, you always have to look at the limitations. 
many of those studies had a very small sample size. And of those 27 studies that were in this review of literature done in 2005, only 10 of them were randomized controlled trials. So again, more research that uses a um, more robust form of study design can give us a better idea, but the, the research at least is promising here. So not all meditation leads to relaxation. It, relaxation may be done in addition to meditation practice, and there are some forms of meditation that produce relaxation. So there's overlap here, but you're not always going to get relaxation with certain meditative practices. In fact, that's not always the focus of some forms of meditation. But regardless of the approach that an individual might take, as we can see here, particularly with cardiac rehab, there is a benefit to a relaxation practice. So it can be helpful to encourage people that you are working with to devote an uninterrupted time for relaxation each day. And that much like with all forms of meditation, a quiet place with un without interruptions and getting in a comfortable position can be really important. And that concentrating on a repet repetition of a mantra or having a single focal point can be helpful here because you'll notice that even with various forms of meditation, mindfulness, or relaxation, there is often something that is repeated or at least a part of the focus to help with moving forward with focusing the mind. And regardless of which type of approach somebody takes, fostering a positive state of mind because we don't want to ruminate on negative things. Now, there are some things that may help with relaxation. As I said, not everybody is able to go through progressive relaxation um, easily. And so for some people, they may um, put in some other parts to this relaxation process. For some individuals, music or ambient sounds can be used. And again, there are many apps or podcasts or um, things available online that can help create an environment of relaxation. Art therapy, it kind of gets you into that flow state, which we know is a positive form of stress. That can be helpful and has been shown to increase relaxation. Or guided imagery, visualization. Again, podcast and audio guided um, apps can be helpful here. Herbal therapy and aromatherapy. For example, lavender has often been termed to be are determined to be helpful for relaxation, or chamomile tea, for example, in terms of herbs. Now, certain people may find that their relaxation comes in the form of movement, and so repetitive rhythmic movement, tai chi, or certain yoga flows may be part of the relaxation or meditative benefits for some individuals. Now, let's step back and take a look at what we've covered here. There is a connection between all of these, and in fact, they all fall under this umbrella of mind-body medicine with an effort to reduce stress and increase focus and attention. Meditation, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and relaxation therapy or relaxation practices are three ways in which an individual can work to actively reduce stress and therefore have a benefit to the body in terms of health and reduction of disease. They all have a benefit with increasing focus and attention. Remember, mindfulness is a specific form of meditation, and that program developed by John Kabat-Zinn, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, has been studied as a specific method for improving health and health-based decisions by reducing the effects of stress. 
and then a specific type of relaxation meant to evoke the relaxation response and counteract the fight or flight response can be used to counteract the sympathetic response, the, the stress response that we are so used to. Now, for you, helping a client or patient getting started with any of these, remember that coach approach. Compassion, openness, curiosity, appreciation, and honesty, these are all important to exploring an individualized, personal approach because people are going to have different comfort levels and different preferences for which of these they might be willing to experiment with. So brainstorming, finding out their preferences, don't have any assumptions. What works for you may not work for another individual. So brainstorm with them. Experiment with options, and it may take some time to find what works for them or what they're willing to, to try and what might fit well for them in any given day. And that may even vary over time as they begin to explore. And give space for the apprehension of getting started. Getting over the hump and getting started with any new health behavior is a real issue. And it's no different here with meditation and mindfulness or relaxation practices than it is with changing someone's diet or exercise behaviors. There's going to be some apprehension with getting started. So leave space for that. Allow the openness to talk about that. It is totally okay to feel that way and make those individuals feel comfortable that that's normal to feel that apprehension with getting started, particularly if their image of meditation is a more Buddhist tradition that they can't relate to. Um, helping to understand that there are varying forms of meditative practices like mindfulness, like relaxation that aren't tied to specific faith traditions or cultures that might be used or tweaked for their own benefit, regardless of where they originated or came from. Collaborate with them. Help them find resources. As I said, there are many, many different apps for relaxation, calm, meditation, finding some of them are free, some of them have paid versions, some of them have music and podcasts related to them. Um, there are websites, books, workbooks, workshops, classes, many, many things out there that could be used to help an individual get started, continue, and develop a regular practice. And that's the key, a regular practice. It may be necessary for you to take that next step with a patient or client, set a schedule, discuss follow through. You all know based on my questioning of you in recent modules that that is a key step. Somebody may say, well, I'm gonna experiment with that this week. Your next question should always be, all right, what are you specifically going to do to make that happen? You have to discuss the follow through, otherwise it may die right there in saying I'm going to do it, but they don't know how to get started. That is a big part. And so discussing follow through, specific steps that might be taken, and discussing accountability, not only what they will specifically do, but how long will it be before you will check in with them to see how it went and explore what went positively so that you can use that to move forward. And these same steps can be taken for you personally if you decide that you want to experiment. And you know, as I've talked to you about in these modules, we need to all practice what we preach. If we be truly believe that health can be improved through lifestyle behaviors, that we can prevent and treat disease with 
positive lifestyle behaviors, then we all should try to practice what we preach, which means experimenting with some of these things on our own so that we can be more open and have a greater understanding of how these will help other individuals in their lifestyle. So how might you go about making a prescription for mind-body work with someone? In the same way that we had prescriptions for exercise, you can use frequency, intensity, time, and type. Now the intensity part is a little bit nebulous here. It is harder to define when it comes to mind-body work. Frequency is often easy. How often are they going to do their meditative or mindfulness practice? How long, how much time are they going to take with each day that they do that? And what type of mind-body work are they going to do? So in this case, for example, maybe five days a week, you would ask someone to do deep muscle relaxation of all muscle groups. That describes the intensity of the practice. The time, 20 to 30 minutes. And the type would be progressive relaxation, which is more of a formal type of relaxation response therapy, which often there are guided meditations that will help an individual walk through a progressive relaxation. Or for example, another one would be every day, a mindful breathing exercise that takes about 10 minutes. And that might be part of a more formal mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So again, working with an individual to find an individualized personal plan for carrying through some of these mind-body efforts, but they require regular practice to see their benefits in the same way that regular exercise is needed to see the benefits of that. So for more information on stress reduction strategies, you'll see that in the next couple modules, we'll move through from here with mind-body work to improving social connection and support systems, which can help reduce stress, and also taking a positive psychology approach to stressful situations. Some things like gratitude practices that can help reduce stress in individuals' lives. So again, stay tuned for more information on how to address a stress response in any individual and in your own lives.